This morning we are going to look at an upside down kingdom. An upside down kingdom. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 20 verses 1 to 16. So if you have your Bibles you can turn there. But we're not going to rush because before we do, before we look at that parable, which is the parable of the labourers in the vineyard, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at the context for that parable. Because it really springs out of a conversation between Peter and Jesus. And I love reading about Peter because I see something of myself in him. Um, in, in the scriptures he's revealed, he's so real, he's so relatable. The reason I like Peter is because he's a bit brash and a bit blunt and he says things that he probably shouldn't say. And I can do all of those things sometimes. He gets overexcited, Peter does, and he feels a lot of things. And then he thinks a lot of things. And then more often than not, he does say those things out loud when he really probably shouldn't say them at all. And we all know somebody like that, don't we? The person who stands in a crowded room and says the exact thing that you were thinking, but you would absolutely never say, right? We all know that person. That's Peter. By the way, if you don't know who that person is, it's probably you. (laughs) You see, just preceding our parable in chapter 19, Matthew recounts the time when Jesus met a rich young man. And the young man, he says to Jesus, he says, what can I do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you keep the commandments. And the young man replies, yep, okay, I've done that. What else? Jesus says, go and sell all of your stuff, give the money to the poor, and I will give you treasures in heaven. But the rich young man, he just can't do it. So he goes away sorrowful because his love of his wealth outweighs, unfortunately, in that moment his love for Jesus. A few verses later, and Peter has been feeling some stuff and thinking some stuff. He's been thinking about the treasures in heaven, and he says this to Jesus. Jesus, you know how that rich guy couldn't give up his treasures on earth and instead store up treasures in heaven? Well, we, the disciples, we've given up everything to follow you. So what do we get? You can imagine the other disciples, <laughs> just their hands in the air, just saying, I can't believe you just said that, Peter. I can't believe you just asked Jesus that question. Do you know how rude that is? And at the same time, they're thinking, it's a really good question. I do want to know what I get out of this. And that's what Peter's saying, isn't it? He's really saying, what's in it for me? What do I get, Jesus? What reward have I earned? Gave up all this stuff. What do I get in exchange and the thing is, out there in the world, this is a good question. It's a standard question. It's, it's how things work. In some ways, it's a good question. It's, it stops people from taking advantage of us, doesn't it? No one would dream of buying a car without asking this sort of question first, would they? Unless their name's Paul Williams. <laughs> oh. who, just, <laughs> who just goes to the car dealership and says, I want that one! <laughs> You don't do that normally. You go to the car and you say, okay, mate, what am I getting for my money here? What am I getting? Well, sir, this model comes with leather seats, air conditioning, ABS, traction control, alloy wheels, collision avoidance system, and your choice of funky retro paint styles. 
Mm, not sure. It's not really enough. It also comes, comes with this strongly scented piece of cardboard shaped like a pine tree. I'm sold. Where do I sign? Peter is applying the same principle to the kingdom of God. He presumes there's a transaction at work. He thinks, I've given up everything to follow Jesus. What sort of reward have I earned? It's human nature. And if we're honest, it's probably a question we've all thought of, but would never say. And here's the interesting thing. Jesus doesn't immediately rebuke Peter. He doesn't say, reward? How dare you ask about a reward? Following me is reward enough. Jesus doesn't say that. Instead, he confirms that the disciples will receive a reward. And he explains what that reward will look like. He says this, I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Nice. Nice for a bunch of fishermen. That's a step up. But then Jesus broadens out the rewards to everyone who's followed him. And that includes me and you. And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. That's good news. A hundred times more than anything you've ever given up is what you will receive from King Jesus and you will inherit eternal life. That's good. But I want to spend a couple of minutes just thinking about this because there is a distinction. Jesus says that those who have given up things for his sake will receive a hundred times as much. And that sounds like rewards. That sounds like you earned that. And then it says, Jesus says, and they will inherit eternal life. Oh, but that's an inheritance, isn't it? You can't earn inheritance. You're either in the family or you're not. And if you're a family member, then you inherit eternal life in this case, not because you deserve it, but because Jesus purchased it for you by dying on the cross in your place and for your sins. That's how that works. You're in the family. You receive that. That's your inheritance. So maybe Jesus' view of rewards then is not quite the same as Peter's. And maybe for us this morning, Jesus' view of rewards is not quite the same as ours. Chapter 19 ends with a strange phrase in verse 30. Jesus says this, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. That's a weird thing to say, Jesus, isn't it? What does that mean? The last will be first and the first will be last. We're going to unpack some of that as we look at this parable. But I'm going to give you a shorthand version because this is Jesus' way of reminding his disciples that his kingdom takes the value system of this world and flips it on its head. So that from the, so that from the outside, things look completely upside down and back to front in God's kingdom. But in reality, we know that's not the case because God's value system is the right and true system. And we know that it's the world's one that is upside down and back to front. But Jesus saw a teachable moment there and he wants to challenge Peter's and maybe our perspective on rewards in the kingdom of heaven. Because Peter got the wrong end of the stick, but at least he had the right stick. 
In the kingdom of heaven, Jesus does give rewards to his followers. But whereas Peter sees a transaction where he's earned those rewards, because he knows that's how things work in the world, Jesus wants to show him that's not how things work in his kingdom. And so he tells the disciples this parable. Matthew 20, verses 1 to 7. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go out into the vineyard too, and whatever's right, I'll give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. So he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. The first thing I want us to look at from that parable is an invitation. That parable starts with an invitation. The master of the house, which represents God, has gone out to hire laborers to work in his vineyard. He invites them to come and work for him. And when Jesus uses vineyard language, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's, he's calling to mind the things that the prophets like Isaiah and Hosea said when they referred to Israel as, as the vineyard of God. So the disciples would have understood in this moment, Jesus is saying, you are the workers that I have invited to come and work for me. And they would have known they were labouring in God's vineyard, which was Israel. They would have known that. And we know from verse 3 that this master is hiring people from the marketplace. So that's equivalent to the job centre, okay? The point is these people are standing idle. They don't have a mission or a purpose, and they don't have a means to provide for themselves. But more than that, I want to point out this. The master goes to where they are, okay? He seeks them out personally. And Jesus did exactly the same with those disciples, didn't he? When he called them to follow him. He went to the place that they were. He sought them out personally. And then he gave them a new purpose. He called them from being fishermen to being fishers of men. And from that moment on, they looked to him for all of their needs. Because they responded to his invitation. The next thing I want us to know is qualifications this parable is all about the master or god's initiative what he did the laborers didn't send their cv through or a resume with a covering letter they didn't have to have references from their old employer jesus doesn't even discuss their skill sets or their experience he doesn't say how qualified are you for this role he sought, he seeks them out and then he offers to pay them if they'll come and work for him in his vineyard. All they have to do is accept that generous offer. That's all they have to do. There's no mention of interviewing applicants, no mention of disqualifying those that don't merit or deserve it. Now that might not be exactly how employment worked in Jesus' day, but this is what Jesus is trying to drive at. They are offered the job of working in his vineyard not based on their merits, but based on the master's 
merits, based on who he is. It's his generosity and his compassion that's the basis for their employment. The same is true for each of the groups of labourers that the master hires. And the, the same is true of the disciples themselves. Jesus' offer to them wasn't based on their qualifications. It wasn't based on their merits. In fact, on the face of it, there were some of those disciples that in all honesty made pretty unlikely choices to partner with Jesus. And at the risk of slipping into stereotypes, most of them were a bit like me. They were used to working with their hands. They weren't academics. They weren't teachers of the law. Some of them had fiery tempers. Some of them were cowards. Some of them were thieves and tax collectors. The, the list goes on and on and on. The point is, God's call on their lives wasn't based on their merits, but on those of Jesus, who is infinitely generous, infinitely compassionate, and perfect. The next thing I want to look at is timing in this parable, because timing is quite important. Jesus probably had in mind like a 12-hour working day. That's a heck of a working day, isn't it? Running from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And the interesting thing is this normally only happened during harvest time. So when you've got a great harvest to gather in, you have this 12-hour working day. You're rising up really early to make the most of the day. The master will go out like many, many times during this parable to gather people in during the day for the same purpose. And you might be tempted to think, why on earth does the master do that? Why doesn't he just gather all the people all at once? Does he not know what he's doing? Is he new to the job? And the answer is no. We're learning again something new about the character of the master or the character of God. We know he's generous, he's kind, he's compassionate, and he loves to partner with people. And his desire is to bless and reward those that work for him. And it doesn't matter when he encounters those people. His attitude, his character, and his behavior is the same, whether it's right at the start of the day or late in the day. It's not because of how great those people are, but it's because of how great God is. So as I said, the master goes out at 6 a.m. and he hired the first group of laborers. And they agreed to work for the whole day. And the master offered to pay them one denarius. That's like a day's wage, okay? A day's wage for a laborer. So we know, don't we, a, a fair day's wage for a fair day's work. That's the kind of, that's the mentality we're used to. The disciples would have understood it. They would have said, that's a fair exchange. I work all day, I get paid a denarius. That's how the world works. But remember, this is also Peter's expectation of the kingdom of God. He expects that if he works a full day in God's kingdom, he should receive the reward of a full day's work in God's kingdom. It's, an, it's a transaction, it's an exchange. The master then goes out a second time at 9 a.m. And the same as before, he invites those people standing there to work for him. Only this time, he offers to pay them whatever is right. So he doesn't even give them a, a monetary value. He says, whatever's right. Midday rolls around, which is the hottest part of the day, and the master goes out again, and he does the same thing again. And then finally at 5 p.m., he goes out again, bearing in mind there's only an hour before everyone downs tools and finishes up for the day. 
And he sees those people who've been standing there all day. And he says, why are you guys still here? Because no one's hired us, they said. These people are desperate. And they are going to wait at the job centre all day until they are chosen or offered an opportunity. Someone who can provide purpose for them. Someone who can provide support for them. And the master has compassion on them. And he says to them, you guys go and work in my vineyard too. It's clear that Jesus has cast the disciples as the labourers that were hired first. I think the disciples would have understood that. He's invited them in to be working in his kingdom early on. But he's preparing them that they won't be the only workers. Even to the point where there'll be some workers that are added in the 11th hour, almost at the last minute. It's most likely that Jesus is talking about the inclusion of the Gentiles. That's us. That's the people outside of Israel. They'll be added in later. Let's look at verse 8 of the same parable. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. The last up to the first. So it's now 6 p.m. It's the very end of the day and it's time for the foreman to pay the laborers their wages. But this is weird, right? The people to be hired um, last are the people to be paid first. Can you, ima- can you even imagine that? So that means that the first will be last and the last will be first. I see what you're doing, Jesus. That's quite clever, isn't it? Even in his parable. But remember back at the end of chapter 19 when Jesus talked about the first and last. It was in that way of describing the seemingly upside down way his kingdom works. And this is a clue that we should expect to see something very different happening in this story soon. Verses 9 to 12. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. But when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Guys, this is it. This is like the one-two punch that Jesus is delivering to these guys. So here it is. Here's the jab, okay? The labourers who have only worked one hour get a full day's pay. I want you to try and put yourselves in the shoes of the labourers who were hired first just for a minute. You've worked 12 hours right through the hottest part of the day, okay? And then on into the evening. And you've watched more and more workers added as the day went on. And now you have to stand in a queue to get paid. And everyone who was hired before you, after you, is standing in front of you. You might be sweaty. You might be tired. If you're anything like me, you're probably a little bit hangry by this point. It's not going to take much to tick you off. And you've watched every single one of those people before you walk away clutching a shiny denarius. And you know how the world works. If those guys got a denarius for doing an hour, and I've done 11, 12 hours, I don't have to be a mathematician to understand I'm going to get a good payday today. That's how the world works. 
I've worked a lot longer. I've worked a lot harder than they have. If he's earned one denarius, I should get at least 12. But here's the cross, okay? The laborers who had worked all day got paid the same. That doesn't compute. That doesn't work in our minds, does it? If it was me, I'd be absolutely furious, I'm going to be honest. I'd be on the phone to my union rep, chaining myself to the vineyard gates and shouting fair pay lawsuit in seconds, all right? Because that's how our brains work. It's outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous. If. It's outrageous if my wages are a reward that's based on a transaction. Okay? It's outrageous if the effort that I put in or my qualifications or my skills are the basis for my reward. It's outrageous if that's the case. It's outrageous if my rages or reward are based on my credentials or my merits. But are they in this parable? Verses 13 to 15. But the master replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Guys, this is it. This is the full-on knockout punch. Remember, the master of the vineyard is God. The worker is accusing the master of being unjust. But the master lovingly and graciously explains the situation and in the process shows himself to be just. Remember, it's the master's initiative. It's his choice to invite the laborers into his vineyard. It was the master who promised to reward or pay them a denarius. It's not a transaction based on their merit or their performance, but based on the master's character, on his generosity, on his compassion. He saw them standing there and he invited them to come work for him. The master is true to his promise. The workers received the, work, uh, the, the reward that he had offered. Not only did they not have any claim on him for anything else, but it is solely because of his generosity and his compassion that they had any reward at all. He could have left them standing at the job centre all day and not brought them into his vineyard at all. And his point is, so what if he is generous to others in different circumstances? The master is free to distribute his wealth and resources as he sees fit. The point of the parable is that no one has earned the generosity of the master. Each worker is equally undeserving of the master's invitation and reward. But each is blessed individually by his character, compassion and generosity. And this is Jesus, maybe subtle, but maybe not rebuke to Peter's heart and the, the heart behind the question, what reward have I earned for all my hard work, Jesus? Jesus says you will be rewarded, Peter, but not on the basis of your credentials or your merits, 
but based on my credentials, on my merits. Not on your actions or your performance, but on my actions and my performance. And when other workers are added to the vineyard, don't resent them because you've been doing it longer. Don't envy the blessing and favour that I show them, but be faithful and know that I'll keep my promises to you. That's the point that Jesus is making. He will be faithful. He'll pay you, your denarius. Don't worry about that. But it's based on him and who he is. Isn't that releasing to know that your reward in heaven is not based on you, on your qualifications. It's based on Jesus, on who he is, what he has done for you. Let's look at some application. Verse 16. (laughs) So the last will be first and the first last. There's that phrase again. But what does that mean for us as New Life Community Church? Well, I'm going to start by telling you what it doesn't mean. Jesus is not saying that there's no connection between our actions and the rewards that he gives. The theme throughout the whole of scripture is that Jesus loves it when we are obedient to him. And he loves to reward our obedience. Therefore, it follows that when we're walking in obedience to Jesus, his blessing and his favour are always close at hand. But the point is, it's not a transaction. You can't say, because I did this, you owe me this. We have no claim over what that blessing and favour looks like. He is God and he is sovereign. Sorry, I've lost my place. Yeah, sorry. The point is it's not a transaction. Instead, this parable is a fantastic picture of the compassionate and generous God and his right-side-up, right-way-round kingdom. A God who loves to lavishly bless those who are obedient to him. But I thank God that those blessings and rewards are not a transaction system. I thank God that they're not based on my character, or the way I behave, or the way I serve in church, or how effective my ministry is. The basis for the rewards and the blessings that we receive in this life and in our eternal life come from the person and work of Jesus. They're based on his character, credentials and merits. And our blessings flow from his kindness, his goodness, compassion and generosity. I think that is so liberating because it frees me now. I'm not striving really hard to earn Jesus' love or his favour or his rewards I'm free to serve him any way I can. I'm free to just live my life out in a way that honours him and blesses him and thanks him for the way that he has already blessed me and will bless me in the future. I'm not striving to make that happen. I'm rejoicing because it has happened. It means you can take joy in your work. You can walk with God knowing that he will keep his promises to you. He will pay you a denarius, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Here's another thing it means. It means you don't have to be envious of other workers that come in and join the church. You don't have to be envious of the blessings and favour that God shows them. 
Because your security is based not on your performance, but on the person of Jesus. You don't have to compare yourself to another believer and say, I wish I was more like them. They've got it all nailed. They've got it all sorted. I'm certain God's going to reward and bless them because they're so much better than me. You don't need to do that. That's not a kingdom, God's kingdom way of doing things. Out of the fruit of what he's already done and blessed you with and will bless you with, you get to be the best you you can be. That's it. It means your worth and your value is not tied up in the things that other people think about you or that you think about yourselves. Your worth and your value is tied up in how God sees you and the value and the worth that he invests in you. He saw you by the marketplace and he asked you to come and work in his vineyard and he's offered to pay you because of him, not because of you. He chose you, came to you personally, invested in you. He values you so much that he died for you, hung on a cross and died. That's how much he values you. It does mean that instead of feeling threatened or devalued by someone else's success in the Lord, we can instead rejoice with them. We can stand shoulder to shoulder and say, praise God for what he's doing in and through you. And maybe we can be part of that. It means that we can do God's kingdom work out of a heart of the deepest gratitude to God, who is the very measure of kindness and goodness and compassion and generosity. The God who always keeps his promises and loves to lavishly bless his workers, both in this life and in the next. I do want to finish by just addressing people here who might not know Jesus or people who hear this message. Because maybe you're thinking, where do I fit into this parable? What does it mean for me? I understand maybe how it fits with the church. How does it fit with me? I want you to know that you are standing in the marketplace outside of God's vineyard kingdom. And maybe you feel directionless. Maybe you're searching for a purpose or a mission. Maybe you feel like you don't have a way of providing for the things that you need, the needs of your soul. I want to tell you that God has sought you out. He has met you personally and he wants to invite you to work for him this morning. He doesn't want to see your CV. He's not interested. As far as he's concerned, there's nothing in your portfolio that can merit his role and there's nothing that can exclude you from it. He wants to give you a new mission and a new purpose. He wants you to partner with him in his kingdom vineyard and he wants to provide for you. You don't have to apply for this job. You just need to respond to the offer. Jesus offers you the same invitation he offered his disciples. He says, come and follow me. Come and follow me. You need to know, though, that this might be the 11th hour. The day might be almost over. Jesus could come back at any moment. And then there'll be no more need for work because there'll be no more harvest. But the good news is that this job is not like working for a mega corporation. It's like working for a family business. When you work for God, you get to be part of his family. And along with all the rewards we've talked about, 
you get to inherit eternal life. That's inheritance again. You are in God's family. So, please don't leave this morning without chatting to somebody or having a look on the website or making contact somehow. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I'd like us to respond. I'd like us to respond in a couple of ways. One, I'd like us to respond and say, God, I want to thank you that it's all about you and it's not about me. I want to thank you that my value and my worth is what you see in me and what you've placed in me. I want to thank you that I don't have to work hard to earn your love or your affection or to be part of your family. But I can work hard out of a fruit of peace and security, knowing that I am loved and valued enough that you died for me. That's one way I want us to respond. Maybe another way I want us to respond is if you're here this morning and you think, I'm not happy about this. I don't understand how this works. I've listened to this guy waffle on for 40 minutes and I'm not getting it. I want you to still yourself in this worship time and just say that to God. I don't understand God and allow him to speak into your heart. Because at the end of the day, this seemingly upside down and back to front kingdom, it's not explained through words. It's explained through the spirit who is alive and active in us, helping us to understand and helping us to live it out. So why don't you respond that way if that's you this morning? I'm going to pray and then we're going to worship. King Jesus, I, I do want to thank you that it is all about you, that my salvation, that my inheritance, that my reward is not based on how hard I work. It's based on how hard you've worked. And I thank you that your faithfulness led you to the cross and that everything that came from that is a blessing to me. God, I thank you that I am worth you dying for. That is an infinite worth. And I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters that we would receive that knowledge again afresh into our hearts this morning and it would do us much good. God, I thank you that yours is an upside down, back to front kingdom that is really the right way up and the right way round and that the world doesn't understand because that can only come from you, God. And I pray you equip us to live out these things and to be a blessing to others as we do so. In Jesus' name. Amen.